0: Morning, everyone. Uh, This is a first for me this morning. Um, I've often had people before a service starts come up and tell me, hey, you know, Tim, just to let you know, uh, we have something happening today at noon, so just make sure that, uh, you know, you've finished on time type of thing. (laughs) And I've had people um, when 1130 or noon hits, their watch goes off. Uh, as a subtle reminder to kind of tell me, hey, I need to uh, end. But this, today, first time this has ever happened in over 25 years of preaching, someone came up to me and said, hey, you really don't have to worry about the time today because the stuff that I have on the grill and the smoker takes three hours. So go for it. Thank you very much. Uh, We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm only kidding. We're not going to go three hours. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been looking at, very first, when we start uh, each sermon in Ecclesiastes, we're looking at this little phrase that connects us with Solomon's entire point of why the book of Ecclesiastes is written. And that is seen in the very first sentence, wisdom is correctly applied, you have to fill in the blank. Biblical knowledge. Wisdom is correctly applied, biblical knowledge. And I guess that leads to another question. At what age can someone be considered wise? At what age, given this definition of wisdom, at what age can someone be considered wise? Would you say maybe 50? 50 is starting to get get there. 60? You got to be 70? I propose to you that you could probably be two. Two years old. Or three. Maybe three. I'll take three. But two or three. You have to, if you know God's word, if you've learned um, love your neighbor as yourself, if you've learned that and you know how to apply it, you are wise. You could be two years old and filled with biblical wisdom and knowledge on how to love others. In its fullness, no, you've got a lot to learn. But you can start practicing true wisdom before God at the earliest age you can know something about God's Word. It's not dependent on age or experience. It's dependent upon do you know God's Word and are you applying it? Plain and simple. Now, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a message very particular on abortion. Which is a real tough subject in the political realm of things. It's an easy subject when we talk about God's understanding of abortion, but in the political field, it's a real big bombshell. Well, we have another one of those this morning from the book of Ecclesiastes and the eighth chapter. It all has to do with how do we relate to the rulers in governance over us. Now, we have to take a step back for a moment and realize that our experience as Americans in this constitutional republic, we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic, two completely different things. But in a constitutional republic, we are the first nation, really, in the history of the world to have it in this form and to have it last this long and to have it this organized. It's a rarity to have this type of governmental structure. And you may be surprised to find out that Scripture never, anywhere in all of Scripture, advocates one form of government over another. They had kings, they had judges, they had times where there was no rule and authority over them except the father and the household. There are dictators, there are emperors in Scripture, there are wicked, evil tyrants in Scripture, And there are incredibly beautiful, lovely kings and queens who honored God's word and made that the precedence for their nation. But it's a rarity to have what we have today. And so when we talk about what Solomon is referring to in chapter 8, our rule and obedience to authorities over us, we have to understand we're in a very unique position. In all of scripture, nowhere did they vote on who was gonna be their mayor, their governor, their councilman, uh, who was in charge of their county, who was in charge of their nation. That is a brand new historical experience that we are privileged to enjoy in this nation. Not every nation enjoys that privilege, and even with that privilege we see man failing us and evil supplanting goodness. But what Solomon has to say is still incredibly 100% relevant for us today and how we view those rulers in authority over us. So let's start in chapter 8. Specifically, we're going to look at chapter or verse 2 through 4 to begin with, and we're going to see some practical obedience pointers to the leaders that are over us. And whether that is a governmental leader or whether it's someone in our home, i.e., parents and children's relationships, or a relationship that you may have at school with a teacher and administration, or at work with a boss or a board or a committee that is overseeing your role as an employer. All of this has principle to apply. Biblical wisdom applied. So starting in verse 2, Solomon says, I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who might say to him, what are you doing? So Solomon gives us incredibly practical advice when it comes to taking God's word and applying it into a very stressful, frustrating situation when you have leaders above us that may not know what biblical wisdom is. They may not know what right or wrong is. Or they may promote evil and wickedness above God's holy standard of holiness and righteousness. How do we interact with that? And Solomon, in his very first point, says, let's do this. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, because of God's word to him, basically because God has appointed him to that role. Keep the king's command. Does that mean we have to obey everything the people in authority over us tell us to do? Well, Solomon knows from God's inspiration to Scripture that we have to take into account the whole counsel of God. What does all of God's word have to say about rulers in authority over us? Well, we can take one quick example and look at the life of Daniel. Daniel was captive. uh, Daniel was enslaved by Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he he came in and ravished the nation, destroyed its military, destroyed its kingship, destroyed the people, uh, murdered everyone who was of fighting age, and took women and young children back to Babylon and enslaved them. They had no rights. They had no freedoms. They had no ability to direct their own future. There was no Bill of Rights for them. There was no freedoms whatsoever. They were slaves in a horrific sense of slave. And look at Daniel's life. Daniel was obedient to Nebuchadnezzar until the king told him to do something that violated God's word. He did not bow down and worship the idol. He stood his ground and paid the consequence of being thrown into the fiery furnace. And yet he was saved from that. His friends included in that one instance. But Daniel was obedient. And think of uh, Joseph. Joseph was enslaved, sold into slavery by his brothers, yet came into that favorship eventually of the pharaoh of of all of Egypt, became second in command of the entire land. I bet you he was obedient to the point of when he was asked to sin against God. The same is true for us. That practical obedience is there until the king says, you must do this. You must sin against your God. You must choose between God and the king. We are always called to choose God but there are times where the king issues a command that is irrelevant to God's truth. For example, my arch nemesis, the speed limit. (laughs) Nowhere in Scripture do you find God declaring the speed limit on (laughs) Prairie 55. Nowhere. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Pueblo Boulevard, 55. Well, yeah, I mean, no, well, you don't even see it in Scripture about prairie, but you don't see Pueblo Boulevard singled out saying, Thus says the Lord, the speed limit shall be 55 miles an hour. Nowhere. God doesn't talk about speed limits at all in Scripture, but he does say we have an obedience to the king that is required of us and to my great humility and conviction the speed limit is not a sinful thing for the king to impose. He has that right, because in the end, whose road is it? Well, I know that in America we can say, well, it's kind of ours because we, the people, eh, in a sense, but we really don't have control over it. We have given that control and ownership of it, its maintenance and its rules over to people who we've elected and they've appointed committees and they've created agencies and they've established it. They run it. We don't run it. And that's okay. So when they set a limit or a rule, Solomon says it is a good thing, an honorable thing, a right thing to obey it. As much as it is frustrating at times for us, Yet that is one way we can show obedience and biblical wisdom to the authority over us when we obey it and honor it and stop at the stop signs, don't go through that red light and obey the merge lanes and the turn signals. All of that is a practical way of honoring the wishes and rules and laws set above us. So keep the king's command because God made an oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence and do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. I think Solomon truly understands, especially in the day that Solomon was king, that they had real rights and rules over you that we would never accept today. We would revolt and cause a revolution if even Solomon was our king, because he had the right to your life. Now, not rightly or wrongly. It's wrongly according to God. But they exercise that right constantly on its people. And so to go against it is a really bad thing to tell the king, those in rule and authority over us, that what you're doing and what you're asking of me, I'm not going to do. You have to understand there's going to be consequences. And even Paul, who was living in an absolute godless governmental culture where the emperor considered himself king, he would say in the end, they are the ones who have the power of the sword. They are the ones who can execute justice. They are the ones who can execute life for life when there's been murder. They have that exclusive right The power of the sword. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Now, that word supreme is very interesting there in verse 4. It actually is the root word to the word sultan. Sultan. And that gives it a really expressive bigness to what Solomon is saying, because we have in our minds sultan, is that word that's attached to someone who is a prince or, or, or even a king, kind of in uh, the Middle East that kind of just has rule and reign over a particular piece of land. So what Solomon is saying is that individual's rule, his power extends to everywhere that he touches. And no one is dare going to say to them, no. And we're talking in, in general civil matters where God has not explicitly said, do not do this or you must do that. Like... You have to have health insurance. Whoa, don't tell me I have to. Settle down, relax, take a deep breath. Has God put anything in Scripture about whether or not the government can force you to have health insurance? I'll save you the time. You don't have to Google search for it. There isn't. So if the government says you have to pay taxes, or the government says you have to obey speed limits, or the government says you have to be in school for this amount of time, or the government says you have to meet these requirements to drive a car, or you have to have these requirements to own a home. They are free to do that. And when you attack that, you are really attacking the fact that God has appointed that person in authority over us. In Romans chapter 13, uh, we read Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul is crystal clear in why someone gets elected or why someone has that position or how someone got that position or how were they elected. God did it. And the reasonable conclusion to that is if you are angry and upset and frustrated and you are brooding because of so-and-so in authority over you, you got to take this verse to heart because this verse is telling you when you are angry and brooding and upset at who's in authority over you, who got elected and who didn't, you really... Are upset with God's design and plan. You are really upset that God thought this was the person that we should have as our boss, as the one in charge of our labor, as the one in charge of our laws and ruling. And from experience, I don't think it's ever a good thing to tell God he was wrong. I really don't think that's a place where you want to stand and say, God, I know that you appointed this person and however you appointed them, whether they were born into it like an emperor or they took control like a general or they were elected like a president. And I'm not getting into all the wickedness and evilness that goes into a possible election, but in the end, the one who has correctly applied biblical knowledge has to come to the conclusion and joyously come to the conclusion that the person that we have is appointed by God. And and Paul is saying that about an emperor who considered himself God. You would think, Paul, you have every right to say, let's overthrow this empire and establish Christ as our king, or establish a godly person as our ruler. That's not what Paul says. Paul says God appointed them. So if you have issue with who's been appointed, no matter how they've been appointed, through birth, through taking it through military force, or through through the election of the people, you need to take it up with God. And God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't err. God doesn't make mistakes in whom he appoints as our governmental leaders. That is a whole huge horse pill to swallow because sometimes who he appoints can test our patience. It can test our resolve. It can test our moral character. It can test our holiness. It can contest our forgiveness. It can contest our mercy. It can contest our patience, and it can contest even our prayers. Now Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus actually kind of makes a beautiful summary statement here, taking into account what Solomon says and taking into account how Daniel and Joseph lived. Okay? saying that there's two things here at stake. Those things that are given to the rulers and authorities of this world, we honor them, we obey them, we champion them, and if we have ability to change, we can change them. God's given us that right in our particular governmental system. may not feel like we can, but at least we're given that option to exercise that right. But those things that are God's, we give to God. We honor God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We worship only God, but we obey both God and man. So what is Caesar's stuff that we are to render unto Caesar? Jesus was specifically speaking in that case. Our money, our money, our financial ways and systems in this, in this country are established and governed and regulated and controlled by the government. All of it is controlled by the government. You just try one time to write your own dollar bill, or you got to make it a 10, your own $10 bill with your own face on it, with your own stuff, your own currency, and see how far that gets you buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks. The cops will call you. They'll stop by, and they'll inform you, you cannot use your made-up money in order to buy things here in America. Are they right to do that? Absolutely. Should we obey that rule and law and pay our taxes? Absolutely. Does the government give us loopholes in not paying taxes? Absolutely. They establish the rules. We can follow them. But we cannot be dishonest. We cannot lie. We cannot steal. We cannot cheat. Because we have to obey God and all those things that God has established for us to obey. And those things that he's given over to the government, we obey. We obey. And this is coming again, Jesus living in a day and age where it wasn't called a president or an elected official, Caesar, a little god, a little emperor. Well, Solomon continues back in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and based on that structure of there are kings and rulers and people over us in authority, yet we still have this allegiance to God first and foremost, so we obey him and those things that he's called us to obey, and we follow the rules and regulations of those in authority over us insofar as they do not violate God's law and God's word. In light of that, Solomon breaks into uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, six different promises that I am pretty sure you never knew were scriptural promises because uh, there's this little book out there called the promise book have you ever seen that book it may not even be in print anymore but a promise book I've looked through that promise book and all the promises found in Ecclesiastes 8 5 through 9 are not mentioned in the promise book because the promise book usually has oh he'll never leave you or forsake you yeah you know he won't give you more than you can handle which is not a scripture verse I mean, he, and all sorts of little things like that, all very encouraging things, but these are also just as enforced promises as those happy promises. These are also promises. He says in verse 5, the first two promises in this section, whoever keeps a command, so follows the king's direction, will know no evil thing. So there's the promise. If you follow the king's commands, you will know no evil thing. I mean, if you're doing exactly what you are called to do as a citizen of that particular governmental kingdom, I think things are going to go well for you. It's a promise. And the wise will, or the wise heart, second promise, will know the proper time and just way. He's combining two beautiful promises there. One, things are going to go well for you, and you're going to live at peace with the authority over you if you follow their commands, okay? Okay. But also, that second part of it, the wise heart will know the proper time and place. If you're walking in wisdom, if God's word is implanted in your life and you are living it out daily and if you are drawing from him exactly correctly how to apply biblical knowledge, you will know the time and place. Or maybe those two worlds collide and you are asked to obey the king and violate God or to obey God And incur the wrath and punishment of the king and authority over us. The wise will know the time and place and those differences and be able to act and live in those situations. You'll know it. You'll know it. You'll understand it. You will be wise and ready for those moments where there is conflict between those two authorities. And God's already established, we saw in Romans 13, 1, that he's the head rule and authority. So he's the one that ultimately I must obey, I must serve, I must love with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. But he's the first and only one that I'm worried about obeying for my eternal life, for my well-being before him, not the king. So one, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. He'll be fine in this world and context with authority. And the wise heart will know the proper time and just way in case things get conflicted in those two realms of authority. Verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. That's the third promise. Man's trouble lies heavy on him. This is in a world without God, in a world without God as our sole worship and authority, our sole hope in this life and the next, man's troubles will weigh heavy on them. Do you think Jesus had heavy stuff to deal with? Or do you think his life was a piece of cake? I mean, he's a son of God. His life had to be a piece of cake. It had to be easy and simple for him. Everyone followed him. I mean, he's, he's full of love and mercy, forgiveness, and truth. It certainly had to be easy for Jesus in this world, right? No, absolutely not. Even the perfect son of God, things were heavy upon him. How do we think it's going to be different for us? We're part of this world. We're part of God's creation. Redeemed and saved by the grace of His Son, yes. But we still bear the challenge of obeying the king and obeying God. And obeying God first and foremost if it conflicts with the king. But we still have to obey a king who at times is lawless, who at times lies, who is imperfect. Who can be evil, and when they create laws and rules and regulations that do not conflict with God's revealed word, we're to follow it and honor it. And I would say more than just follow it and honor it, there should be a joy that we're following it and honoring it as unto God. But there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Fourth promise is found in verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Solomon immediately goes from this practical application of, hey, we need to obey the rulers and authorities over us. Oh, and by the way, who in the end can tell us anything about what the future is going to be like? And he's right. That is a promise that we have. No one is going to know what the future will bring, except God. Only God knows that. So why are we spending so much energy and effort in our world, in our time, in this place, in America, wondering what life is going to be like under so-and-so or so-and-so's rules, or if that ruling is upheld, or that ruling is struck down? Solomon says, why are you wasting time about what may or may not be? You're spending a lot of mental energy, physical energy, frustrated energy on trying to find out and figure out what's going to be. Let's just level the playing field. Your guess may be an educated guess based on experiences and guessing. God has never asked you to guess what the future is going to be like. What he's asked us to do is take this present day And live it for him. Live it for him. Make this day a day in which you rejoice that he is your God and that you are one of his children and tell the world about that relationship. He's never asked you to figure out what's going to happen if the House of Representatives goes red or blue. He doesn't want you to spend the mental or emotional energy on those kind of thoughts because in the end, you're not going to get it right. You may get some of it, some of it right. But what good is it going to do? Even getting some of it right. How does that change your responsibility of living for God today and the next, to its fullness, by loving Him and loving others? The promise is you are not going to figure out tomorrow. That's hard because immediately that puts so many people on the political talk shows out of business. Totally out of business. Because their whole job is based on, I'm going to scare you about what might happen. I'm going to scare you about what may not happen. I'm going to scare you about wars and rumors of wars. I'm going to scare you. There's, There's no reason to spend any energy Time on that type of dialogue. God's told us and promised us we're not going to figure it out. Verse 8, another promise, promise number 5. In fact, uh, uh, verse 8 has two promises, five and, uh, promise 5 and 6. Ecclesiastes 8 8, no man has power to retain the Spirit. Okay, that means, well, he's going to define that a little bit more in the next part of that verse. Or power over the day of death. No man has power over the Spirit or power over the day of death. Who? Who can add one more second to their life when God says, your life is required of you? Who can do that? No one. That's God's promise, is that no one can control life or death. God does. God determines the time. And yes, God determines the time when that person is martyred for their faith. Yes, God determines the time when they die unexpectedly, in tragedy, in circumstances beyond their control. God knows that and has designed it for his glory and for his majesty. How? Sometimes he doesn't tell us. Why? Sometimes he doesn't tell us. But you can take all the health care, medicine, and vitamins, and exercise and precautions you want, and you still can die. Um, There was a a runner when I was growing up that was always on the news, always um, writing books. His name was Jim Fix. I don't know if any of you remember Jim Fix, uh, but he was this exercise guru. I mean, he was running. and saying, oh, this is the best thing for your life. You got to run and jog every day. You know what happened to him? He was jogging, died of a heart attack. I don't jog. <laughs> Might die of a heart attack. So here's this guy, a health nut guy, always on the news about how healthy it is to jog and how that will extend your life and how good it will be for you. He dies jogging. All of that exercise in the world could not extend another moment of his life. Now, that does not mean we throw caution to the wind and say, hey, we can do anything, live any way we want to, and who cares? I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Because God has told us we also have a responsibility to keep in check that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's, there's that tension that God always leaves us with because that tension creates in us a need to pray a need to be dependent upon God, a need to meditate on his word, a need to exercise his word in our hearts. He always leaves us with attention, but he always leaves us with direction. That tension is a good thing to hold. Do I obey the king or do I obey God? It drives us to prayer. It drives us to relying on his word. It drives us to study and read. It drives us to listen to his people. It drives us to maturity in our Christian faith. So that tension is good. In 1 Peter chapter, uh, oh, uh, verse 9 just ends that section. In uh, chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, All this I observed while applying my heart to know all that is done under the sun when men had power over men to his hurt. So Solomon, being a king himself, Saw all of this happening before him and realized there's a lot to take in. And there are times in which all of this happens to our hurt, to where we suffer the consequences of the actions or inactions of the people in authority over us. Sometimes we have to pay the bill, sometimes we have to pay the hurt. And Solomon said, I saw all of this. I understood all of this. And that's why I'm communicating to you this tension between obeying the authorities over us and obeying God. It's hard. And sometimes, even when you do the right thing before God, there can be hurt and punishment and unfairness happening to you. It's going to happen. Because we're sinners living in a sinful world. Even though we may love Jesus, we still bear the challenges of that. Lastly, I want to take a few Scripture verses and kind of apply them to us from this. The first is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. It says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Talk about tension." Talk about the challenge of making this real in your life. Revelation 17, 14. They will wage war against the Lamb. That is the unbelieving, controlling influence of this world. will wage war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him... Will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. The world is not friends with God. I'm talking about the world in the biblical context. The world is not friends with God. The world hates God, rivals God, wishes to destroy things that are godly. But there will be a time, and this is a place to pin our hope on, there will be a time when that war occurs in an end-of-the-world moment. But don't fear. Don't be overly anxious. Don't be scared. Don't be frightened. Don't compromise. Jesus, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, is already the winner. You know, when I said that God doesn't tell us that we should figure out what's going to happen tomorrow... Solomon said that. We're not supposed to figure that out. God, though, communicates to us some things about the future. And the one thing that makes this chapter 8 comforting is knowing that in the end, Jesus wins. God will establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And privileged and honor and blessed are those who are considered his counted faithful followers. Is that you? Are you one of his counted faithful chosen followers? All you have to do is ask him to forgive you of your sins. And he has promised that every sin that you have committed are committing this very moment and will commit in the future, will be forgiven. You will be cleansed from unrighteousness and you will be counted and adopted into his family as one of his. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and we're going to have the Lord's table because this reminds us of that sacrifice and reminds us of his victory over death itself. So as they come up, I'm going to lead us in prayer real quick. Father, we are grateful and thankful that you give us this tension in life to obey the King and to obey you. And we are thankful that you alleviate that tension by giving us your word and your spirit to lead and guide us in all things that are good and beautiful. Help us with this tension, not just with those in authority over us, but with our own sinful hearts. And forgive us, Father, of all of our transgressions because we rejoice in the day in which you are revealed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name, all of God's people said, Amen.